Welcome to the Active Advisor Podcast, brought to you by Harbor Capital. Join us as we learn from pros who have helped thousands of investors live better lives. I'm Brian Moore, and I'll be chatting with some of the brightest minds in the financial advisory business, bringing you insights on practice management and investment research that works for advisors and their clients. Joining me today on this episode of the Active Advisor Podcast is Eric Strid, CFP, CHFC founding principal of Consensus Wealth Advisors out of Philadelphia. Eric, alongside his father and brother, has worked hard to build a firm that acts as a true fiduciary for their clients, placing the best interests of the families they serve above all else. Eric is dedicated to building a company of amazing and committed people who all share the same vision, to transform the financial services industry, to help the people they serve to achieve their financial goals and to actualize their most deeply held values. Welcome, Eric, and thanks for joining me today. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, we can talk about the draft later in you know, sports teams because we're both here Philadelphia-based, but we usually start these off with really kind of getting, what is your first memory that you have related to money and investing? Well, that goes a ways back. My father was a stockbroker, started in 1967, and was a founder of the firm with me and so forth. And So I literally grew up immersed in talk of markets and investing and so forth. So very young ages, probably my first formal memory was, I remember in college, I joined every mock investing contest that I could find, right? I mean, like pick your three best stocks and, you know, six months later, the winner wins. And so that was probably when my more formal, you know, love of markets kind of began to develop, I would say. That's awesome. Did you win anything? I have to ask. I don't think there was any kind of monetary rewards, right? I do remember, yes. Like, you know, of course, back then I didn't know very much about investing. So I kind of like picked all these flyers, you know, it was never real stocks that you would own. It was like, just yeah. go pick a flyer. So probably not. I probably didn't win much. Well, you got to learn, right? That's the way you do it. Exactly. This is actually a great segue into talking a little bit more about business with your family. So back in 2014, you made the decision to break away from Big Wall Street and start your own firm alongside your father and brother. Walk us through that decision to break away and go independent. What has been the best and most challenging aspects of starting your own firm? First, I would say it was an aspiration of mine. I got into the business in 1992. My dad had been at Merrill Lynch for quite some time, and I joined him there. And from the very beginning, I had an aspiration to have our own independent firm for a whole bunch of reasons. I relatively quickly kind of felt uh, a little boxed in by the kind of living in a world of a lot of policy and procedure and bureaucracy. But I think it's just, you know, part of being in a big wirehouse. Anyway, so it was a long aspiration. It took us till 2014 to do it. So it was, it was not easy. But, you know, we finally did it. I mean, just the overall feeling of accomplishment to actualize a goal that I had had for so long was probably the best part of it. I mean, it was really hard convincing our clients to come along. We had, uh, you know, some financial aspects that we, you know, because we had a real business by that time. So we had to do some financing to kind of get ourselves started to startup costs. My dad had some, you know, deferred comp we were leaving behind. Like it was kind of high stakes, but we did it, you know, and it was just a huge feeling of accomplishment to do that. Had a great rate of retention with our clients and so forth. I would say, you know, the most challenging part of it, the part that I really wasn't ready for is I, I, I think I really underestimated what it takes like infrastructure wise to run, you know, an independent 
advisory business, especially in today's world, we're so technology intensive and there is a lot of infrastructure to really run, in my view, like a, a world-class advisory firm. So building all that out was a lot harder and took a lot longer than I would have bargained for when we first did it. So that's another kind of phase two of the feeling of gratification is, you know, we got through those first few years and built something that I think is now, you know, a pretty good machine. Well, that's awesome. Let me ask you a question. What do you remember as kind of being one of the most challenging points in that transition? Was it the technology? Was it, you know, the porting over of clients? What really sticks out in your mind as kind of being the one thing you're like, wow, this is the most challenging thing and really kind of came out of nowhere? There's actually a moment I can remember. It was 2014. So I was in my mid 40s, I guess. And we were successful. Like, I mean, I was accustomed to making good money and I had a lifestyle. And so, you know, a month after we broke, I went on my spring break vacation with my family, you know, and I'm, I'm down in Florida and I'm like, I'm not going to, you know, let this whole transition stop me from going on vacation. And I could remember being down in Florida on spring break and calling my brother, Paul, who works as my partner. And we had a call and it was just like, we were doing really well. Clients were signing up. Yeah. We had no idea what the hell to do with them once they were signing up. We didn't understand Schwab's our primary custodian. We didn't understand the paperwork flow. We still were really struggling with the whole idea of us being a, like an independent, separate from our custodian. You know, at the time we had worked at Wells Fargo, like we work at the custodian. So getting stuff done was, we just were used to the workflows. Our performance, our reporting software, I remember him saying, and he's a techie, so he kind of knew this stuff and he he was not satisfied with the platform that we had chosen. So now we're like talking about undoing that. And, uh, you know, and I didn't totally understand the technology. That's his thing. So I'm like, I was in a haze. And my, my mind was spinning. Sure. I can remember that phone call. I, I will always remember that phone call. That's when it struck me that, oh my God, this is way bigger project than I ever anticipated it was going to be. And we got a lot of work ahead of us. It was a little discouraging, I will admit. But then, you know, you kind of like dig in, right? It makes you dig in and get fired up to do the work, which we did. And, you know, we got through it and we built it. And, you know, again, looking back now, it's super gratifying that we did. Oh, that's awesome. So kind of carrying that tradition on, you work with your brother and your dad. I know you have three kids. Have any of them kind of talked about maybe joining you in the business? My oldest, as a matter of fact, is about to graduate from Villanova University in about a month. And I definitely see in him a lot of the same character traits that I had. He's very interested in the business. He actually interned for us for a summer. And then he also worked at uh, Dynasty Financial who we are part of their network, their operators are kind of middle office. So he interned for them for a summer and actually has just landed a job working up in Manhattan for an RIA firm, which we kind of agreed would be a really cool experience for him. And, you know, I mean, I suspect that after maybe a few years of that, we'll probably be talking about him coming in. And I mean, I would personally I would love it. I mean, for me, that would be a huge joy. So I hope it happens. No, that'd be great. Sounds like it would bring some kind of overall fruition of carrying the family generational goals together. Curious as to why you picked the name Consensus for your firm. Yeah, people uh, very often pronounce it Consensus. It's actually Consentus. There's a T uh, in there. And, uh, you know, sometimes we talk about that's an easy mistake. And maybe we picked a name that was maybe a little confusing for clients and so forth. But we've always been values-based in our approach. Our whole idea is that we want to help our clients to 
actualize their values and the things that are most important to them through their wealth. And, you know, the word that kind of struck with us was harmony, mm-hmm. wealth planets in harmony with your values. And um, that's what consentus means, harmony in Latin. So we were kind of kicking around. And I always thought like having like a Latin name would be kind of a cool marketing vibe to have. And we came across that term and it was harmony and it just kind of fit for us. That was the origin. That's awesome. Just for the record, I try to get my daughter to take Latin. You know, she's a freshman in high school. And I was like, you got to take Latin. It's going to help you out because my German really has not helped me out much. So I was actually fairly... I wasn't like a classics major, but I took an awful lot of classics classes. I was actually still, when I was in high grade school and high school, they still taught Latin and I took Latin and Greek. I always loved it. I loved the literature, you know, the ancient literature. And so for me, that was a big part of it was just, I love the language. I mean, I, I actually think the English language is so incredibly influenced by Latin. And one of the things I value in my own skill set is verbal skills, writing and communicating. And I credit a lot of it to Latin. So there's a tie in there too. (laughs) (laughs) Very nice. See, I knew it. I really like the application of harmony and and definitely looking backward and understanding where we came from to kind of help us go forward. You've talked about this quote from Roy Disney. When your values are clear, decisions are easy. Do you wouldn't mind saying a little bit more about kind of what that means to you? Yeah. I actually think about that quote an awful lot in life because And I actually just wrote a blog about this that got a really good traction with folks. One of the things I believe is like life is like just this constant flow of decisions. You wake up in the morning, you're all day long, you're bombarded. You know, what am I going to have for breakfast? What route should I take to work? You know, who should I marry? What job should I take? Like, so there's big and small decisions, but they're just flowing at you all the time. It's just demanding you constantly to make decisions. And I do believe that there's a high correlation with success comes from having good decision-making skills, like being able to process a whole bunch of decisions and to effectively make them quickly. I've read a lot about how quick decision-making is like a real big hallmark of success, but I think it's hard to make decisions. Like indecision is a big difficulty and that's what gives birth to procrastination. But when you think about your values, when you boil a decision down to like, wait a minute, what's important? What's the big picture importance to me? How does this decision fit into my big picture vision for this project or for my life or whatever? It becomes clear. The fluff kind of fades away and the decision becomes clear. Of course, we use it with clients in making financial decisions. And again, you know, we're talking about financial decisions that are consistent with your values, your vision for your future and for your life. And I think it really helps people to see that for sure. Oh, that's great. One actually circle back to your role at Consentus and how you built the firm. We've definitely talked a lot about harmony and values and, and kind of how you use them as part of your daily, it seems like, life and business. If you wouldn't mind, talk to us a little bit about your role as co-founder. Are you serving in client-facing capacity today or are you driving the operation from behind the scenes? Yeah, so client-facing for sure. I mean, my brother Paul and I, I think, have really great complementary skill sets. You know, Walt Disney and Roy Disney. You know, Walt was the one who everybody knows his name and he was the creative face of the Disney company. But without Roy, he'd be a cartoonist, like drawing, you know, ads for some magazine somewhere, right? Like Roy was the business brilliance behind their success. And in the same way, my brother, Paul, he's just a born operator, right? So he is very much behind the scenes, making sure the trains run on time. And I get to do what I love to do, which is, you know, kind of be 
out and about and be a front man for the firm. And the way that's evolved for me in terms of my personal role is, you know, there were many years of my career where I was actually like the advisor to clients. I was in all the meetings. I was delivering directly the financial advice to clients. And we got to a point where the firm started getting large enough, both in terms of clients, but also we started having some of our junior advisors, you wake up one day and they're like, they're 20 years in the business. You know, they've got a CFP. They, so we have a, you know, a team of advisory staff who are really capable. And so the combination of those two things got to a point where we started to realize that if we really wanted to continue to scale the firm and make use of everybody's talents, it's time for Eric to not necessarily be, you know, in every single client meeting, the one who's delivering every bit of client advice. And now I've taken more of a role that is I deliver leadership, relationship, and creativity. I'm the one who's the gray hair of the group. And that's what clients look to me for when it comes to like the everyday nuts and bolts of managing their financial plan. It's the team, which is a cool role for me. I, I really enjoy that. So I'm doing a lot of, you know, creating content. You know, I write a lot of our stuff that we put out. When I do interact with clients, it's more around big picture conversations about their family and their, you know, their big picture goals, what's important to them and less about here's what the market's going to do next year. And that's fun for me. Like, I love that. I get to interact with people and, you know, be in conversation with clients all the time. No, that's great. That's great. And really, it kind of sounds like you've kind of built a nice team at Consensus and and you've got a well-seasoned staff on board. So how did you approach building that team outside of you and your brothers? And what do you look for in your staff and, and any future employees? Yeah. You know, one of the things that we have done that I really value is we took the time to sit down and put our core values on the wall. And so we established and identified five core values with a little description of what each one of them means to us that is kind of like pretty prominent in our office and kind of in how we operate with our team. And what we started doing was really using those values as our interview process. You know, when we're hiring somebody new, like we look at their resume and we want to know that there's a skill set there, but we really often say, you know, we can train almost anybody to fit the role. What we really want to know is, do they share our values? So when we're interviewing somebody, we interview them about each of those core values and like family is, you know, is our number one. And so we want to know, you know, what does family mean to you? How do you think about family in your life? And just let them talk. And if the answer makes us believe that they value family. That's like check one, you know, uh, optimism is one of our values. Same way. How do you see yourself as an optimist? If we like the answer, you know, check two. So what ends up happening, and it's been like a really amazing screening tool. It just is so funny how when someone starts with us, we just had a new staff member just now start. And within a week, you can just see like they're right in with the fabric of our culture. It takes no time at all. And my thing is the technical skills, that's table stakes, right? Like, you know, of course, they're going to have the technical skills. What I want is a really great culture and mm-hmm. a team that operates well together. And that has been a great way to make that happen. 
No, that's great. And it really kind of dovetails in nicely to the next question. It's very evident that you and your brother and, and your father have created and fostered basically a company that cares about not only its employees, but also its clients. And you have, you know, your brother, it sounds like, lets you kind of have some of the honors of being in a position of being an advisor and being kind of the face man. Do you think the deep caring that you have for people and for families do you think that's kind of the norm in the business or do you think that's really more of an anomaly? You know, it's funny. I, I think it's absolutely is the norm. I think our profession gets such a black eye, you know, in so many ways, in so many places for being greedy and scumbaggy and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you know, look, there are some bad actors in our profession who have earned that reputation and have kind of bad apples spoiled a bunch. But my experience has been, the vast majority of financial advisors I've ever met are some of the finest people and most compassionate and caring people that I know. However, I think as a profession, we have a really difficult time expressing that compassion and that care. We get so bogged down in the analytics of our craft mm -hmm. that we totally lose sight of what we're really here for, which is a relationship with a family, like and in fact, a, a really important relationship with a family, probably maybe one of the most important relationships this family will ever have. And we're spending our time trying to explain alpha to them. First of all, it's language that is foreign to them. It's language that they could care less about. They don't want to know about what alpha is. You know, that's not what they're here to see you for. They're here to see you so that they can educate their kids and you know, benefit the causes that are important to them and someday retire so they can spend more time with their grandkids. Like that's what matters. And we're getting, you know, we spent an hour talking about alpha, like, no, spend the hour talking about their life and deal with alpha on your own time. You know, like your own time is when you should be worrying about how you're managing their portfolio, not bogging them down with it. That's something I've learned that I wish as a profession, we were better at that. And that's why I think the, those who are good at that are at the top of the table, you know, the best in the business. No, agreed. Agreed. I mean, I think at least personally, I've always viewed this as kind of a, we're in a customer service job. We are there really to service people, but also take it a little bit step further and kind of help them through this journey called life. That's absolutely amazing. And I love your approach to that. So growing up, though, you grew up the son of a stockbroker. So it definitely sounds like you've made, you know, kind of in school and everything else. I'm sure your parents and family have taught you along the way as well. But growing up the son of a stockbroker, I'm sure hearing around the house, you had to hear about kind of the markets and, you know, really listening as a kid to those technicals and kind of the alpha. In your investment philosophy, you state that equities are better than anything else. Personally, love the conviction there. But what's behind your view and curious is this influenced by kind of growing up as a kid in your parents' house, listening to, you know, maybe comments from your dad about the markets? Yeah, yes. When my dad kind of was coming up in the industry, it was very clearly you were selling access to information that other people didn't have. You were selling your ability to pick the next hot stock. You know, it was a commission model. So the more activity, the more money you made. So you're always trying to convince clients to sell this and buy that so that you can, you know, make more money, make more money, make more money. And that, you know, what I began to see at a young age was this emotional volatility that comes along with investing. I mean, I've been 30 years doing this now. And like, what I consistently have learned, like, over all this long period of time of watching, not necessarily watching markets, but watching investors 
like watching how people interact with and think about the markets is that it's it really is this like crazy emotional roller coaster. But yet, I say this all the time. If I could go back in time to 1992 when I got my Series 7 and just say, just whisper in my own ear, like, dude, there are going to be so many times when you're going to be tempted to just buy the S&P and literally don't even look at it. I mean, our business today would be many times what it is now. And I think about that and I'm like, all that, you know, worrying and trying to figure out, I mean, we tried market timing, we tried, you know, we've tried everything. And I look back on it all and I, and all it ever did was reduce our results. <laughs> so like, I remember really well the tech bubble and I remember the bus. And I remember when WorldCom went, you know, when Enron and WorldCom and all those hijinks that were happening and it was like, the world is coming to it. Like, this is corporate America is. And then I remember 9-11 and I remember the night when, um, you know, I was working at Wachovia Securities and that, that night, literally poof. And, you know, we were, next morning, we're getting more Wells Fargo. So it's not like I haven't lived through a lot of crazy, scary stuff. But through all of that, I look back and I've learned it's, it's a bad bet to bet against the long-term prospects of the American economy. Emotions can kind of lead you astray and, and kind of get you doing things that you wouldn't do in normal times. Or you think logically when you, you, know, you get a chance to be logical and think about I'm sure you've seen that play out in, in clients during these times that we've talked about 9-11, you know, the great financial crisis. Do clients ever challenge you on your conviction in equities, especially when it comes to the latest thing off the shelf, the latest trend in cryptos, NFTs, even, you know, boring old bonds? Of course they do. I mean, it's fortunately now we've gotten our practice to a place where that happens much fewer and further between because we really, um, you know, I'm, a, I'm actually a big Mick Murray kind of apostle. And I, I love the stuff he writes and his philosophy. But as he says it, the body can't store vitamin C, which is why you have to have boosters of vitamin C all the time. And in the same way, a client can't store our investment philosophy and the kind of, you know, ride it out mentality, because the minute they leave our office, CNBC is on their phone, right? And, you know, the financial media exists to make people over-emotional about investing. Like that's their purpose in life. That's what sells financial media, you know, advertising. So the minute they leave our office, they're going to be bombarded by that. So, so by a quarter later, all the work you did to kind of convey our investment philosophy, will be it'll be all gone. So you have to continue to remind people of that message. So we do that. You know, we, we, I write a monthly piece that's all about behavioral investing, at every review meeting, we're kind of hitting on that. So because we built a solid infrastructure around that, I think it happens a lot less, but it still happens. No, definitely. I mean, I think I like to consider myself a little bit of a student of the markets. And I've always kind of believed that the markets are always forward looking. They're at least looking six months to a year out. And that's kind of how I've had to train myself to kind of you know keep an eye on the present, but also keep looking towards the future, which contributes hopefully to optimism. Looking out next two to three years, are there any specific growth areas or other goals you're focused on as a business? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, we are actively trying to really grow our firm. Our 10-year goal is two doubles, which, you know, is lofty, but uh, especially because, you know, we have a decent sized business now. So it's easy to double when you're doing, you know, $100,000 in in revenue. But yes, we have one staff member who's a little older than me, but, uh, you know, we got some young people on the team here and I'm starting to 
get to a place in my life where my kids are getting through school and I've done well and I've made some money and everything. And I really am starting to think a lot more about taking consensus to a place where I can leave it to either my kids or to our staff in a place where they really have something that they can run with. That's something that really gets me out of bed these days and excites me. Yeah. So I'd say our, you know, our 10 year goal is two doubles. Our our immediate near-term goal is a billion in assets. We're just a little short of that. That's hanging on the wall in the break room is, you know, a billion. That's the near-term goal. Nice. Well, hopefully we get some market movement and can kind of help you contribute to that. We're going to kind of shift gears here a little bit, definitely because you mentioned your kids and, and possibly, you know, putting maybe the finishing touches on your business to leave it to your kids to run with and take it. What is a skill that you believe an advisor starting out on their journey today should focus on developing? You know, listening. <laughs> we as a profession, that's another thing we do is we talk way too much. You know, we talk about values-based planning and helping people to achieve what's important to them. Well, you can't do that unless you listen to their story. Another guy I've considered a mentor is Bill Backrack. It's called Values-Based Financial Plan. That's his kind of training mechanism. And he, he talks about how a client meeting should be the 90-10 rule, that they should be doing 90% of the talking, you should be doing 10. And the 10% you are talking should be simply to be asking a question. So we talk about it all the time. Like people, that's what they want to do. They want to tell their story. You know, they want to talk about themselves. <laughs> so if you could just suspend your own agenda and make it all about them and just listen to them, you're going to have a great shot of being successful in this business. Look, it's one thing, you know, I know that there's like all this talk about AI and robo-advice and, and all these things. And this has been around for a lot of my career, this fear that, you know, the robots are going to push us out of the industry. And in a lot of ways, you know, if you are focused on alpha, right? If you are hanging your value proposition on anything that can be replaced by a machine, you are screwed, right? Like you really are because a machine will come along and do it better than you. The one thing a machine can't do is listen and empathize with another human being and be in relationship with another human being. Like you can't get that from a machine. So put your value proposition on the one thing that you can't be replaced for. And that is, you know, this ability to listen and to connect. Couldn't agree more. Really couldn't agree more. And we wish you all the luck. And I'm sure you will hit those two doubles. That's definitely the goal. Let's hope it happens. There you go. Fingers crossed. So when we transition, uh, I've got a couple of closing questions for you. We at Harbor believe wholeheartedly in active management, but every financial professional has their own take. What's your philosophy and where does active matter most? Yeah, I mean, I am very much a Nick Murray apostle on this point, and that is that I really don't have enough of an opinion because I believe it's such a distraction from some of the things that are really are more important. I think you can get great investment results from active management, and you can get great investment results from passive management. I actually wrote an article one time that talked about like, so if investor A 10 years ago did all this research and figured out the best performing active managed portfolio over the next 10 years. Like you could, if you had a crystal ball and I bought the S&P 500, but investor A, when COVID hit, panicked out and sold that fund at the bottom of COVID and wasn't in it for the ride up, who cares that they picked the best one? I still won. So the behavioral decision 
to either be in the market or not, same thing, 08 or whatever, that was the thing that mattered. It wasn't necessarily that the fund performed, you know, it's investor return, not investment return. So I view it as a major distraction. I think active management, certainly there are active managers out there who are great. And I think it matters most in areas where there is value to be added. So I would say that we'd be more likely to own a small cap actively managed portfolio than we would, you know, kind of a large cap core, or we would be more likely to own an emerging markets active portfolio, because I think, you know, those are the places where expertise matters maybe a little bit more than some of the parts of the market that some of that outperformance is maybe disintermediated out. Understand. And do you think there's any correlation between interest rates, higher interest rates? Do you think that that helps or hurts? Love to get your opinion on that if you have one. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's like anything, like if you're good, you will be adding value in all kinds of environments. Fair point. Yeah. I do think it's one of those things like I heard the other day, like when they do a survey of drivers and ask, do you think you're better than average or worse than average driver? And 90% of the drivers say they think they're better than average drivers. Well, that's you know, mathematically that don't work, right? Yeah. So like it's the same thing in active management. I, you know, there has to be an average and there has to be a below average, you know. <laughs> and the other part of that too, I think, is it's not easy to find outperformance over the long haul either, right? Because there's a lot of human error and people retire, people get older, maybe their work ethic changes. The person who was the great superstar portfolio manager maybe isn't the one that's running the fund anymore. You know, it's tricky. My personal view is it's tricky. I think there are financial incentives that are a little skewed, for example, with respect to style drift. And, you know, when Bill Miller was the superstar manager on all the magazine covers, because value was in favor, you know, and then when value is out of favor and it's like, it's real easy to start convincing yourself that the stocks you want to buy that, you know, are growth stocks so you can ride the wave that they're really like GARP or whatever. It's not easy to remain disciplined. It's why I think it's why Warren Buffett is truly a legendary investor because, you know, I remember during the tech bubble, he was a doddering old fool. Like people were literally laughing at him, but he didn't change his discipline one ounce. And now, you know, he's made more money in the last 10 years than he made in his entire life. So he stuck to his style discipline. If, if there's one thing, you know, if, if I were to be like a big apostle of active management, that would be the one thing I would say, make sure you find somebody who's the backbone to stick with what they said their fund style was supposed to be, and that they're not going to drift just because the market has their style out of favor. Well said, well said. So how can people find you? I know you have a website, but do you have a social site as well? Yes, we do. Our website is consensus.com. So that's easy enough. I am also on LinkedIn under my own name, Eric Strid. And we also just started using Instagram and actually have been really getting great traction with that. So we started a page called Empowered Values. I actually wrote a book called Empowered Values. And so we branded our Instagram page called Empowered Values. Very nice. Very nice. Eric, thank you for coming today and, and uh, speaking with us and answering our questions. Definitely. I know we had a great time listening to you talk about how your passion for the business and how you're really disciplined, as I'm sure served your clients and many clients well at Consentus and Prior. So now we're going to do what I love to call the lightning round. It's also called 60 Seconds with Eric Stritt. You ready? Let's do it. Nickname? Stritty. Hobby? Golf. Favorite cheesesteak place in Philly? Larry's. Profession if you weren't an advisor? Teacher. Favorite ski mountain? Uh, Jackson Hole. Best place you've ever golfed? Uh, 
Abandoned Dunes. Early bird or night owl? Early bird. Best slice at Antonio's in Amherst, Massachusetts. Pepperoni. Most rewarding part of the job. Connecting with people. Hidden talent. Writing. What's your handicap? 10. First investment you ever made? Cisco Systems. 60-40 portfolio, a classic or a relic? Relic. Best advice you've ever received? Don't bet against the American economy. Best advice you've given to a client? Don't sell that. Eagles record this year? 11 and six. Favorite way to get active? Playing squash. Whether you're a seasoned advisor or just getting started, the Active Advisor brought to you by Harbor Capital offers professional insights for the financial advisor community. Visit us at harborcapital.com to learn more. And don't forget to subscribe to the Active Advisor on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date on investment trends, tried and tested research methods, and what your industry peers are up to. From all of us at Harbor Capital, thanks for tuning in. And now for important disclosures. This material is for informational purposes and is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research or investment advice and is not a recommendation, offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of 28th of April 2023 and are subject to change. The opinions expressed by the speakers do not necessarily represent the views of Harbour Capital Advisors, Inc. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by Harbour Capital Advisors, Inc. to be reliable and are not necessarily all-inclusive and are not guaranteed as to accuracy. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. Such information may include, among other things, projections and forecasts. There is no guarantee that any of these views will come to pass. This material may not be representative of the experience of other individuals. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the viewer. This material is not legal, tax or accounting advice. Please consult with a qualified professional for this type of advice. Investing involves risk including the risk of loss. Specific companies and issuers are mentioned for educational purposes only and should not be deemed a recommendation to buy or sell any securities. Any companies mentioned do not necessarily represent current or future holdings of any investment products. Harbour Capital Advisors Inc. does and may seek to do business with companies covered in this podcast. As a result, listeners should be aware that the firm may have a conflict of interest that could affect the objectivity of this podcast. This material is prepared by Harbour Capital Advisors, Inc. Harbour Capital Advisors, Inc. is not affiliated with Consentus Wealth Advisors. All trademarks or product names mentioned herein are the property of their respective owners. Copyright 2023 Harbour Capital Advisors, Inc. All rights reserved.